Hey, are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. I don't know, Gavin. I don't have a budget for Halloween decorations. Jesus Christ, we're in a car lot in Queens. Ass. The following podcast contains... This man! This man is responsible for so much filth! Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. We needed to get away from the election so badly you decided to talk about child murder instead of the election? What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave, ain't down with the devil Bledsoe, and this is a Wednesday, October 31st, 2018, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled edition of the show, part two of our Halloween spooktacular, where we talk about the illogical conclusion of the satanic panic. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Satanaway Demon Hunters, cleaning up covens and taking down temples since 1982. Are you plagued by devil worshippers, satanic cultists, or witch covens? Are dark forces tempting your children in the embrace of the black arts? Call Satanaway Demon Hunters. Our investigators have read many, many books about devil worship and occult practices, and we know how to identify and eliminate meanings of Satans in your church, school, daycare center, and neighborhood. We promise to find someone, anyone, we are moderately certain is practicing ritual magic and unholy rites in your town. Why live in fear of what you don't know when our small-minded and zealous paranormal punishers can be on your doorstep persecuting evil within 24 hours? Act now and get 20% off your first witch hunt. Don't live with demons another day. Call Satan away. My father's side was all witches and warlocks. We, were, we lived on witchcraft. We, lived on, we had a contract direct with the devil himself. My father, I remember when I, used to, when I, was, when I was younger, like eight, nine years old, I would see him going to the room to, to worship the devil, and I could feel the presence of the devil come into that room. And my father would worship and speak in tongues, in demonic tongues, and, and worship and put flowers and put candles and put water. I, at, at seven o'clock at night to five in the morning, I was really going to demonic to demonic church. I was going to witchcraft church. I was it was I was being trained to be I was being trained to be uh, a, a, a warlock. I was being trained with witches that were in the in the religion for thirty years, forty years, fifty years. They were training they were training me to learn how to speak to principality, spirits in the ground, the devil himself. You couldn't speak to the devil right away. You had to earn your right to speak to the devil. I was a kinda strange and nerdy kid. I think I might have said something about this a time or two. Yeah, you think so? And at times, it was tough growing up. I mean, my parents, who I poked gentle fun towards a time or two, didn't really get me. But to their never-ending credit, they loved me and always kept me more or less centered. Kept me from going from odd and nerdy into full-blown weird kid. We all know the weird kid in class. In elementary school, the weird kid was the one who spent a lot of time alone. Was it chicken or egg that he didn't have a lot of friends because he was weird? Or was he weird because he didn't have a lot of friends? I don't know that there's an answer to that. But by high school, the weird kids had all kind of gravitated together into the weird kid collective. Back in the early 80s, we didn't really have a term for them. But today, I think we would recognize them as goth kids. You know, lots of black clothing, perhaps a penchant for eye makeup, tendency to listen to a lot of sad, dark music, and generally wearing the sort of nihilist ennui that, as an adult, I completely identify with. Makes a lot of sense. 
Back then, the nerds considered the weird kids with a sense of disgust and also quiet relief that someone out there was lower on the social totem pole than we were, and absorbing a certain amount of the abuse that would certainly have landed on our shoulders. And as an adult, however, I have a lot of respect for these kids because the hardest thing in the world when you were a teenager was to be different. It takes a lot of guts and integrity to be yourself in a world that demands conformity and compliance. And it was something I didn't have back in those days. I was a fucking chameleon in high school, able to blend in wherever I was. It made for easier living and moving around like I did, but also not so great for my personal development. But with all that being true, being a weird kid came with a lot of hazards. Like, you know, being accused of child rape and murder. Yeah, I can see how this could be a problem. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the details of the Westminster 3 because, uh... It's been said in time. By people better at saying and doing than I will ever be. So I'll just hit the highlights real quick. In May of 1993, three eight-year-old boys went missing in a small town of West Memphis, Arkansas, just across the Mississippi River from Memphis, Tennessee. In 1993, West Memphis was poor, white, and backwards. I know because I drove through there and drove through Westminster quite frequently every few weeks to go to Memphis. To, uh, well, check out Graceland or something. Their bodies were found the next morning in a wooded area where local children played by a juvenile parole officer by the name of Stephen Jones, whose name will come back in the story. The bodies were found submerged in a drainage ditch, stripped naked, tied hand and feet with their own shoelaces. The coroner's report concluded the boys died from multiple injuries and drowning. The official autopsy report, however, found no indication of sexual assault, though one boy's penis and testicles had been mutilated. This will also play a part in the story that is to come. Now, you see this guy, Stephen Jones, that juvenile parole officer who found the bodies? He had himself a theory. And, you know, I would normally play a drop here, but since we're talking about child murder, maybe I can uh, restrain myself. Anyway, Jones decided right away he knew who committed this horrible crime because he felt this crime had occult undertones. And he knew this because he and his friend, another juvenile parole officer, spent a good bit of their free time driving around the cotton fields of, of Arkansas looking for devil worshippers. Did they? They most certainly did. And Driver was sure he had a parolee who was in fact a devil worshipper in one Damien Eccles, an 18-year-old proto-goth kids. And Jones immediately decided Eccles did the murder and set about trying to prove this. Jones and his partner in demon hunting told their theory to investigator James Sudbury, who began months of investigating Eccles and his friend Jason Baldwin, and a kid by the name of Jesse Muskelly, who wasn't really a friend of Eccles or Baldwin, but was tangentially associated with them. Muskelly had an IQ that placed him in the category of borderline intellectual function. Well, that can't be good. Who, again, was not a close friend of the other two, but would eventually be the linchpin of the prosecutor's case. After months of investigation of Eccles and Baldwin, including, I swear to you, I am not making this up, having a 30-something truck stop waitress, Vicki Hutchinson, go undercover to pretend to seduce Eccles so he would take her to one of his satanic rituals. These girls, oh, come on. No, I'm serious. I should mention that the only reason Vicki Hutchinson was even part of this was that at the time of the murders, she was a suspect of a theft from her employer. And one time while being given a polygraph over this theft, she happened to mention that she had some information that she would happily give the police. 
Hutchinson even went so far as to bug her home when she and Eccles, when she brought Eccles over to try and seduce him, which for the record did not work in either the seduction or the recording department. She would go on to claim and testify that she, Eccles, and Baldwin attended a Wiccan meeting in a nearby town and Eccles drunkenly confessed to the murders. She would later recant this testimony, saying that she did it for the reward money and to avoid any criminal charges. Hutchinson's false statement was enough to give the police probable cause to pick up Jesse Muskelly and interrogate him for more than 12 hours, of which of those 12 hours, 46 minutes were recorded. Jesse, who had, had again an IQ of 72 and... And I know he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he's sensitive... He confessed to helping Baldwin and Echoes murder the three boys and hide the bodies. Jesse Miskelly's confession was finally enough for arrest warrants for Baldwin and Echoes, eight months after the murders were committed. Miskelly was tried first and separate from Baldwin and Echoes, and based solely on his confession, convicted of three counts of murder and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Baldwin and Echoes were tried together and based solely on Miskelly's confession and no physical evidence and some outlandish expert testimony, convicted of three counts of murder. Baldwin was sentenced to life in prison without parole and echoes the mastermind was sentenced to death the jury took less than an hour to return with their verdict so here we have three children murdered three other children they were 16 17 and 18 are suspected accused and convicted of a crime on no evidence and shady shoddy police work and sentenced to life in prison and the death penalty on the hunch that somehow they were involved because they were kind of weird yeah weird's a pretty good word for it and just maybe, maybe they were devil worshippers. They freaked me the fuck out. It took 30 years to get the West Memphis Three released, mostly because they found rich celebrities to champion their cause who, ironically enough, were part of rock and roll music, which, of course, Satan's music. So maybe the devil was looking out for them in his peculiar and infernal way. Even with the mountain of evidence pointing towards their complete innocence, they are still officially guilty of the crime and released with time served on an Alfred plea, which is a goat fuck of a legal maneuver which allows one to plead guilty they'll say you're innocent and still be convicted of the crime because they stipulate that the state has enough evidence to convict you don't bother trying to understand it it will only make your head hurt three children are dead the murderer was never caught three other lives ruined because some yahoo in a red with a redneck cop was caught up in the throes of the satanic panic nor was he alone being caught up in that Last week, we played a clip of a training video sent around a law enforcement agency on how to spot a satanic cult in your town. All compiled, I guess, well, by well-meaning morons. I don't know if they were well-meaning, but they were definitely morons. Some of these well-meaning morons took it a step further and made themselves a tidy living by peddling fraudulent and insane claims as an occult expert. One of these was a retired police officer by the name of Dale W. Griffiths. Excuse me. Dr. Dale W. Griffiths. I didn't spend six years in evil medical school to be called Mr. Thank You Very Much. According to Dr. Griffiths, quote, the subject of my doctoral program, ISP, was the behavior modified groups and their effects on criminal justice agencies. I researched and indoctrination, brainwashing techniques, mind control by criminal cults and government organizations, e.g. Project MK Ultra, and law enforcement tactics in confronting people under mental influence of others, unquote. 
And what institution of higher learning granted Dr. Griffiths his letters? Why, a place called California Pacific University, founded in 1978, was a private, non-accredited correspondence school that offered programs leading to bachelor's, master's, and doctoral-level degrees in various subjects. California Pacific University existed to print diploma mills and degrees for anyone who could pay, all because of some loophole in California law. It was finally shut down in 2000. The case that shut down CPU summarizes the university's alleged violations of the education code by noting, quote, there's not even a semblance of compliance with statutes which govern such institutions. The curriculum had no substance behind its lofty description. Faculty was virtually non-existent and coursework was laughable. Decree requirements were routinely ignored, unquote. So Dr. Griffith's PhD was as legitimate as my certificate of accomplishment from Big Ass Bartending Academy, a certificate I received, by the way, for completing three bottles of Jameson's and in an eight-hour instruction block behind the bar because Big Ed didn't think that I could do it. Have you met me? Defending his expertise, Dr. Griffith said later, quote, states have never accredited a college or university. They only grant permission to grant degrees and to operate. CPUs was officially granted permission to grant degrees and operate from 1979 to 1989. I studied at CPU from 1980 to 1983 and graduated with my PhD in January of 1984 while in a licensed period. On December 1st of 2000, the Supreme Court ordered that CPU had legal approval to operate until 20, June 25, 1997 and further stated that the degrees were awarded before June 25th, 1997 were legally valid, unquote, Dr. Griffiths said. So his expert testimony was a key to the prosecution case. Testimony where he said things like, quote, one of the most powerful numbers is in, in, in the practice of satanic belief is 666. And some believe the beast wrote it as six as three. Uh, Crowley's work, Crowley's work, he discussed that sex before eight or you lose magical power. Unquote. He then went on to talk about the full moon, the date of the killings being a pagan holiday, the power of young blood as a sacrifice, and that the testicles of one of the victims were removed to get access to the semen, all of which were factually wrong. And frankly, the kid was eight years old. His testicles didn't even have... Away! Just walk away! Good point. I read the entire transcript of Griffiths' testimony, the bulk of which is lawyers arguing whether his degree from the DeVry Institute of Satanic Studies qualified him to be an expert witness in the case, and for some reason, it did. The remainder is a short blather of vague speculation which attempts to tie several false or misleading statements by the prosecution into a narrative that fits the theory of the case, namely that Eccles and Baldwin killed three boys as part of an occult ritual. Griffiths gives a meandering replies and vague statements on numerology, pre-Roman pagan holidays, name drops Aleister Crowley, and repeated complaints about how stuffy the courtroom was. If his testimony wasn't such the linchpin of the case, I would honestly feel sorry for the man who came across as a dotty grandpa who fell asleep watching the Twilight Zone and woke up traumatized by a dream of being sent to the cornfield. You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. How the fuck did these kids get convicted? There was no evidence linking them to the crime. The police fucked the investigation up from the start, brought in by fucking idiot Barney Fife motherfuckers with their junior demon hunter badge and crackpot devil worshipping theories. They coerced a confession from a developmentally disabled kid and based their arrest warrants on the testimony of Flo from fucking Alice. Tell her she can kiss my 
appropriate. The prosecution's own coroner reports belied multiple allegations presented as facts at the trial, and the expert witness that locked in the theory of the case was a whack job conspiracy theorist that even Art Bell would hang up on. I would say, sir, you're not, you're not actually the beast, but you're working for him. I'm trying to help you here, sir. How did it happen? Because, pod friends, there is a cult, a coven, a temple of darkness at work in this story. It's a cult that's endemic in small towns across America, and its power is at play even today. You can find their long fingers in every strata of rural society, in the schools, the churches, the homes of the good God-fearing people. It preys upon their fears, their ignorance, their xenophobia. A Republican. No, I mean, yes, but not, not just them. I'm talking about people who use fear and stupidity as a fucking stepladder to personal power. The judge in the West Memphis 3 case finally got his higher political office. He's now a state senator in Arkansas. And his election to the Pat Post was the only reason they're out of jail as he could no longer quash motions for new evidence and new trials. The prosecutor in the case is still a prosecutor. And he rode those convictions to re-elections over and over again. And was even named Person of the Year in 2018 by some, I don't know, Arkansas Circle Jerk group. And is reportedly considering a run for U.S. Congress. And the case was a real stepping stone for him politically. Ironically enough, though, the officers who came up with the whole reasoning behind the case would land up in the trouble with the law themselves. Jerry Driver, the probation officer who just knew Damian Eccles was the killer, was convicted of stealing from his department. Sudbury, who with Driver led the investigation into the three, resigned after allegations he was stealing guns, drugs, and money from the evidence locker. His resignation was in lieu of criminal investigations into his actions. The satanic panic was a whole moment in time entirely common in human history, and especially the history of the United States. We seem uniquely susceptible to things like this, starting with the witch trials in Salem through the slave uprisings, and in the late 19th century, there was actually a moral panic about paper. Quote, by the end of the century, there's growing concerns among the middle class parents that these cheap, plentiful books were seducing children into a life of crime and violence. The books were even blamed for a handful of murders and suicides committed by young boys. Perpetrators of the crimes whose misdoings were linked to their fondness for penny dreadfuls were often referred to in the newspapers as the victims of the books. Unquote. In the 20th century, we saw panics of anarchists and communists, not the ones you're thinking of. We had those prior to World War One. We had the Japanese in World War II, and then there were the ones that you know about, the satanic panic, the AIDS panic, the war on drugs, the pervert panic where sex offenders were waiting behind every playground, the Muslim panic following 9-11, and at the moment, we're in the midst of yet another immigrant panic. This panic is one of America's greatest hits. It comes back decade after decade as another politician picks it up and runs with it, featuring a different group of immigrants. The history of America is a string of nonsense fears inflated, amplified, and capitalized by the media and politicians in order to gain and maintain power. An article in Psychology Today had this to say on who benefits from moral panic. Quote, Politicians often fuel a moral panic by aligning themselves with the news media and law enforcement in a moral crusade against the evils introduced by the folk devils. In other instances, such as the U.S. war on drugs launched in the late 1980s, a key politician, such as President Ronald Reagan, may define the folk devils, in this case, urban crack cocaine dealers, and precipitate a moral panic over the evils of crack cocaine and the alleged threats those evils present, unquote. Don't get me wrong. 
Everyone gets a little something from a good moral panic, be it ratings or money for your police department. And of course, the public gets something to be afraid of and feel good about it because they're fighting back against the evil. Almost everyone wins, except, of course, for the people who are the focus of the panic. People like the West Memphis Three or, you know, the victims of this crime. And the families of those victims who still don't have closure on this and still don't, we still don't know who committed these crimes. Those people, they don't do so well. If you turn over the rock of any moral panic, you will find some powerful people feasting on the soft underbelly of American stupidity. And the scary part is, the scariest part about this entire spooktacular is how it keeps working decade after decade. Generation after generation, century after century, it keeps working because the structures of our society, indeed the structures of capitalism itself, are designed for it to work so well. Keep your people ignorant and afraid. Keep them divided and at odds with one another. Keep them fighting each other so they never, ever turn on you. It seems to me the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing poor people that rich people give a fuck about them and then making sure that rich people run everything. So there, friends, there is your dark cult. There is your coven, your evil temple. The devil worshipers are real because if money is the root of all evil, and it always has been, then apparently Satan is very real and he should be on the fucking hundred dollar bill. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That is it for this bonus show this week, part two of the Halloween spooktacular, the West Memphis Three. I managed to fulfill my promise to finish this dumb two-parters. And Lord knows Satan tempted me with the MAGA bomber and the shootings in Pittsburgh and all the other shit that's going on. But you know what? I had so many jokes to make that I promised his infernal majesty that I would finish the show. Praise his evil largesse. Now is the part of the show where I ask you to give your immortal soul to the devil by rating and reviewing the show wherever you find your podcast. Elevate his message of suffering by inflicting that suffering upon others when they hear my voice in their earbuds. Praise him. All of my payons to his satanic majesty may be heard on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast. And our hymns of praise to his diabolical presence are on SoundCloud at the show name at www.whatthehellpodcast.com. So for me, Dave, shout at the devil, blood soap, producer, devil with the blue dress on, Gavin, and all the fictional friends of the devil, we want to say, Satan is real, working spirit. You can see, and he- see him and hear him in this world every day. And he rewards you for your worship, consigning you to an eternity in hell, which is all of about 37 seconds in 2018 Trump-adjusted time. We'll see you all next week in Hail Satan. Working with power He can tempt you and lead you astray
I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow.